We are in uh, Romans chapter 10 today, and, um, you know, as, as we've been going through the book of Romans, you know, it's been great because we've, we've been able to, you know, take uh, small snippets of, of, of the book. I kind of liken it to, you know, like a really fine meal with a, a multi-course meal, you know. Um, but today, we're actually going to go through a whole chapter. Well, look at that. Uh, I would equate that more to like a whole hog barbecue, okay? So we're, we're going to be diving in uh, to a lot, but I do think this is going to be good for us, a good blessing. Uh, my hope is that I'm able to pile your plate full <laughs> and uh, just know that over the summer, you can keep coming back for seconds, all right? Uh, enough of the food analogies there. Um, but no, this is, this is a, a good stopping point uh, as we pause over the summer and, and I do pray as we're, we're heading into the, the, the time that we're really called to a place of, of taking some real inward evaluation of, of our hearts and, and to what we'll find today in God's word. And so what I'd love to do is just dive right into the, to the passage. And if you're willing and able, would you uh, please stand? And, and I'm going to be reading through uh, Romans chapter 10. We're going to be in verses 5 through 21. Verses 5 through 21. The word of the Lord in verse 5, it says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with your heart one believes, for with a heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard Indeed, they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous for those who are not, in, who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Let's pray. Father, as we read this word, your word, 
Lord, I pray that now the Holy, your Holy Spirit just begin to awaken our hearts, illuminate the truth of your word so that as we respond, we are drawing close to you, that we are orienting ourselves, our lives, our, our, our hearts around you and to you. I pray that this morning glorifies you in that, Father, we are understanding more of our need for Christ. We are glorifying in the works of Christ and his death and his resurrection in the hope that we have through that. So I pray for all here today that they are blessed, that you speak to their hearts, and that all of us come together in unity as to what you have for us today. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You all may be seated. So the title of the sermon today is Resting in the Righteousness of Christ. And as we go through these verses, uh, there is a theme that I want us to pull and leave with today, and that it's this, is that our rest in Christ leads to both inward and outward action. In the, the passage here, I've broken it up into to four sections. And each of those four sections is a theme I want to pull from that speak into this resting in Christ. As we go through verses five through eight, the point that I want us to pull from in here is to remember whose righteousness. Remember whose righteousness. As we move on to verses nine through 13, my prayer is that we are receiving this truth that we can rest in the assurance of our salvation. And from that, in verses 14 through 17, we're going to hear this call to proclaim the gospel. And as we close out the chapter, we end with this merciful warning from the Apostle Paul. So that's our roadmap. I pray that you are blessed. I pray that God is speaking to you today. And I just ask that you remember to be resting in the righteousness of Christ. You know, last week, Pastor Paul gave a really, I thought, wonderful exhortation to us as he wrapped up uh, chapter nine. He talked about the summer, and his words to us were, don't waste your summer. And in particular, what he was speaking to was not letting the rest of summer, meaning the rest, meaning as we change our rhythm, as we're maybe gonna be traveling more or you know, we, uh, I know for students, you know, school is, is winding down. There's, there's a whole shift in, in just kind of how we, we run at life. Uh, I think of youth ministry. We're going to be doing, uh, which is wonderful, um, we're going to begin our, our youth trips like we've done in the past. In fact, we're going to be leaving next uh, Sunday for our, our wilderness trip for our middle schoolers. And it's been a joy to be able to plan and to be able to, you know, look at the summer as an opportunity to get back to some of the things where we've been used to. But it does point out that, you know, there is a shift in rhythm. And so even as we're pausing on the book of Romans until later this summer, I, I really want us to be at a place that what we take from today is understanding that even though we are called to be resting in the Lord, that there's something that produces action both inwardly in our hearts, but also an outward result of what takes place in our heart. And that we're not wasting opportunity when we have a change of season, but that we see that there's more opportunity to be living for Christ and to be proclaiming his truth. And so as we get into this first point here, 
in verses 5 through 8, remember whose righteousness. You know, we're, we're at a point that what we're seeing Paul unfold and help give us a summary of is basically that, that Israel, the nation of Israel, is, is functioning in a way that, that Israel has, has put her own righteousness where Christ's righteousness belongs. Basically, just resting in their works, resting in their pursuit of the law, resting in the fact that they think that their pursuit of the law is superior, and that God looks upon that pursuit of obeying him as standing righteous before him. Another thing I was thinking of as going, I was going through this passage was just, you know, understanding even in my own heart, as I have listened to Pastor Paul preach and as, as I studied the book of Romans and just how much the Apostle Paul speaks to the, about the nation of Israel, I understand that in my own heart, I kind of at times look at that as something that's not connected to me. Like, okay, this is the nation of Israel. This, this is Old Testament things that have taken place. There's a history here. But as a believer in Christ, I know that I share in the new covenant, which is true. But at the same time, if I'm not careful, and this is something I want us to think about today, that if we're not taking the lessons of Israel to heart, then I think we run the chance of doing the very same thing that we see them do here. So I want to ask, are, are you avoiding the mistake that Israel has made that Paul is speaking to this morning? Are you resting in your own sense of righteousness this morning? And I'm not necessarily talking about something of maybe that is uh, a proud, like a prideful stance per se, or that you're, you're overly legalistic. And that is true, that can happen. But I think in the depths of our hearts, where we can get to and what we can resort to is just seeing that, man, in order for me to really be at peace with myself and pleasing God, then I need to be doing these things. And it all boils down to behavior. It's all boiling down to what I'm sensing or what I'm desiring to achieve. Rather than seeing that, no, there, there is a, a rest that I can find. And that rest is in Jesus. So what we see here is, is we're seeing that Paul is showing, the Apostle Paul is showing in verses 5 through 8, the way that, hit, that Israel missed the point of her history. He's already made the point in verses 3 through 4 of Romans chapter 10. Let me read that real quick for you. In verse 3 and 4, it says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Amen. You see, Israel failed to see that her law, her history, it was meant to lead her to Christ for righteousness by faith and not by works. And that's what's being missed here. And I think that for us, we need to take this to heart because we can find ourselves in a very similar place. So let's look real quick about how Paul begins to unpack this. And one thing to note about this passage is that Paul references, and I, and I think I counted this up correctly, but there's, there's 10 references to the Old Testament that the Apostle Paul refers to as he is making his point and as he is unfolding the truth here. 
And he's not doing that by accident. There's real purpose in this because, again, who is he, who is he really pleading to? He's pleading to the nation of Israel. And he's using their own history and their own truth and, and bringing to bear that what, is it, what has happened in Christ, this gospel that I am preaching to you, all of this connects. And all of your history points to this very Jesus. And so he does this as he begins this passage. He first, in verse 5, the Apostle Paul quotes uh, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, where it says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. In other words, Paul says that Moses laid down the principle that perfect obedience to the law would obtain eternal life from God, which is true. And so the truth is for us, if, if, if we would trust him and by his grace never sin, we will be saved and have everlasting life. I mean, that's, that's what we find from the law. That is the covenant of the Old Testament. And you see, what's important for us to stop and think about real quick here is that, you know, it's easy to look at the law as this, you know, ancient, you know, thing. Instead of understanding that, no, there is, there is something good from the law that it brings to us even to today. Law being the, the law being the schoolmaster for us to, to learn by and understand the character of God, understand what he counts as righteous so that we can learn from it. But we're not just to rest there. You see, right, there is a righteousness that is obtained from the law. And what begins to happen here is Paul begins to reference that, you know, there is, there is truth in understanding that the law it can be followed. It can be done. Remember this, you know, it's what Paul is explaining from verse 4, saying that Christ is the goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Again, he says in verse 4, right, you know, Christ has fulfilled the law. He is the end of the law. It has taken place. And as he goes on into uh, verses 6 through 8, the Apostle Paul then references another Old Testament passage in Deuteronomy. And I want to park here for a second just to point you to something that Paul is doing. And let me read to you this from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 11 through 14. It says, For this commandment that I command you today is, is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go up over, or who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But listen to this. It says this in verse 14. But the, but the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. It's interesting that in this Old Testament passage, it's, it's speaking a truth that, no, you can do this. It can be done following the law and perfect obedience to, to God is possible. But you and I both know it's not doable. I have fared miserably. I look at my own life and my own heart understanding the, the, the sin, my depravity. I am not able to. You see, the point is here is to understand what Paul is saying, that the law is doable, 
in that no one ever measured up to the standard, but what he's doing, he's saying, no, there is somebody, and that is Jesus Christ. Let me read to you verses 6 through 8 here in chapter 10. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. See, it's almost a a verbatim, like a word-for-word quote of that Old Testament passage. But what you see Paul doing here is that, you know, each time Moses refers to the commandment in Deuteronomy, he refers to commandment, what Paul is doing in, in Romans chapter 10 here is he's substituting Christ in place. See what he does here is, and when Paul refers to Christ's incarnation to bring him down in verse 6, and he refers to Christ's resurrection in verse 7 when he says to bring Christ up from the dead. You see, the law has been fulfilled. There's nothing that has been sidestepped here. And it has been filled by a human, that being Jesus, both God and man, who has fulfilled this. And you see, a lot of what we find here, and I think the point that Paul is making in this particular part of the passage is that there is nothing Israel did to make this happen. There's nothing they did. You know, Paul puts the earthly life of Christ and the risen life of Christ in the place of our obedience to the commandments. You see, that is the key to justification. And that's the point of Romans 10, 4, which these verses support, that Christ is the goal of the law for righteousness to, to everyone who believes. And you see, the truth for us, and as we see from Deuteronomy, you see, this is how the commandments are not too hard for you or not too hard for me. Because why? Because they were not too hard for Christ, and he fulfilled them perfectly. And what do we do? What do we receive? By faith, God credits Christ's obedience and his righteousness to us. It's an important truth to rehearse again and again in our hearts, in our minds, that we can rest in the righteousness of Christ, that we can look at the law, that we can look at what is explained in the Old Testament of what was communicated and given to the, uh, the nation of Israel as a good thing. We can celebrate it. We can look at it, that it is good and true. But then what can be added to that is the rejoicing of the fact that in Christ we have now inherited the promises of that covenant. You see, think about this. The joyful faith in Christ because of his righteousness. And you see, that is exactly what we see Paul saying here. And think about this too, that think about the, that the sweet fellowship of Christ in this understanding and in this faith of placing and knowing that it is Jesus' righteousness, it is not mine. We can live fully in what Jesus speaks in uh, the Gospel of Matthew when he, his invitation is to what? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. In what? Find rest in me. Take my yoke upon me, upon you. 
You see, Jesus, the yoke that Jesus bears is the law on his shoulders. He has fulfilled it perfectly. And now we can have that rest. But I get it. I am very much aware of my failings. I am very much aware of where I fall short. And even as I think back in previous chapters of Romans, we see Paul, the Apostle Paul, doing the same thing back in chapter 7 when he's wrestling with his flesh and understanding the desires of his flesh and just questioning and just, just in a frustration of why do I keep doing the things I don't want to do? And all of that leading to this very hard conclusion that is hard for any of us to accept when Paul says, wretched man that I am. But it doesn't stop there. The explanation goes on to who will deliver me from this body of death and then a praise. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, that's what we're proclaiming this morning. That's what we're celebrating when we are singing unto the truths that we did this morning and proclaiming what Christ has done. Giving praise to him. Letting our voices come together and sing praise unto what God has done. But what I invite you to think about as you go home this week is to think about every day what Christ has done for you and rest in that. You know, maybe this morning you're feeling very unsettled and there's just uh, a real lack of peace in your life. And there could be many reasons for this. But can I offer one thing to think upon? That maybe you're unsettled this this morning is because you're not resting in the assurance of Christ's righteousness. You don't, have to, you don't have to earn it. Think of the, the hymn we sing, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, the part in the song, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power or wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. Amen. Let that be what we boast in today. As Paul continues on in verses 9 through 13. Let me read these verses to you. And this leads us into our second point of to rest in the assurance of your confession. Verse 9, it says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. In verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, I think we would be untrue this morning if we didn't approach this scripture with just an amazing response of praise and worship to God. Worship of how expansive and inclusive the gospel is to all. The invitation is to all. And that is bountiful. And it leads us to this place of just being enthralled with the very work that God has allowed and, and purposed in Jesus Christ. Now, as we look at this, one thing I want to draw us to is that as we look at verses 9 and 10, and it talks about if you confess and believe, 
it's important that we don't take this as something that is separate, that this is something that is joined together. That these statements are meant to be seen and experienced and understand a truth that they are joined. You see, Paul doesn't mean just believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, but you don't have to confess it. Okay, and he's not saying that you must confess Jesus as Lord, but that you don't have to believe it in the heart. That's not what he's saying. These two things run together. You can think about it in this order, and this is what Paul does in a, in a long statement, that confession leads to belief, or confession and belief are together. There's confess, belief, and then the believes, confesses. It's like a statement of truth, but also an action that works together. So as you're confessing Jesus, that, that confession of your mouth is as a res, what's a result of your heart. And you see, you're, you're confessing what is in your heart. These things are together. You see, the mouth confesses what the heart believes, and the heart believes when it believes that God raised Jesus from the dead, and that Jesus is Lord and we know this, and, what we're, and our confession is saying this, that the resurrection is God's vindication of everything Jesus accomplished in his life and death. And what he accomplished was a triumph over our guilt, our condemnation, our death, Satan, and hell. And now as the risen victor over all his enemies, he is given a name that is above every name, and that is Lord. That's who our confession is to. It's not to uh, Jesus who is a God. No, it's Jesus that is God. And it's not just Jesus that is a Lord. No, Jesus is Lord because of all that has been accomplished through him. And Paul continues to carry this on in, in this section that the, the heart and mouth um, working together in verses 11 through 13. He speaks of what the heart does in verse 11 and what the mouth does in verses 12 through 13. You see, in verse 11, the heart believes. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And then in verses 12 through 13, the mouth calls. In verse 12, the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, and then concluding with a wonderful promise. In verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let that bring assurance to you this morning. One of the things I, I encounter in a, in, a, on a very, in a very common way is through times when I interact with our students, uh, sometimes in a counseling situation, it's not uncommon that what I, what I encounter is a, is a lack of assurance of their salvation. They, they are in a place where they, they, they believe, they, they can confess, they understand the gospel. But there's just this lack of assurance. And let me just say, it's, it's, not, it's not just our youth. I think this speaks to our hearts as a whole. I struggle with doubt. I can let my actions, and as I think of my own thoughts and the in the deep places of my heart, it can lead me to a place of saying or asking like, well, do I really believe in the gospel? And if I do, why do I keep sinning? 
There can be these attacks of, of lies, of just calling out the, the hypocritical nature of my heart. But guess what? Yeah, it's true. But no, what, what must we do? What must we stand in? Stand in the assurance of our confession. Stand in the assurance of that confession is, is representing truly what is in the heart. I want that to be an encouragement, to rest in that. Are you confessing Jesus? See, you're not, you're, what you're confessing is something that you didn't put there. This is something that, that God has done. This is something, what you're confessing is the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit and that you have new life in Christ. You wouldn't be confessing it if you didn't believe it. This is because of Jesus. And you see, as I even say that, it's, it's like I, I want to pause and, and just say, can we feel the wonder and the joy of that? Can we feel the wonder and the joy of what our confession in Jesus Christ as the Lord? What is that stating? One thing it states is it, it really gets the, 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 the spotlight off of me and it points it to God because of what he has done in Jesus Christ. And my heart begins to worship him. And maybe that's just what you need to hear this morning. If you have a besetting sin in your life, run to Christ. Don't take the mindset of like, well, I, I, I can think of a time in my life where I, I really believed in Christ and I was really doing the right thing, but now I've, 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 I'm... I just need to rededicate my life and, and become a Christian again. That's not how it works. Think of your confession. When did you first come to Christ? When can you think about in your life and, your, and in your history and your story of what God did to bring you to him? Stand upon that confession and know that what is transpiring in your life is a growth in Christ. You're still his. Rest in that. Let it bring you joy like it did to the Gentiles. We read in Acts chapter 13, verses 46 through 48. And this, this speaks to this, what we see here in this passage, there's this, this joining of Israel and the Gentiles and the fact that the gospel goes to all, right? In Acts chapter 13, it says, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out loudly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to first to you. And he was speaking to the Jews, Israel. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The rejoicing. In Christ, we are part of the new covenant. In Christ, we are to inherit all the promises of what God had, has promised to the nation of Israel, but that promise is to all who will what? Place their faith and believe in Jesus Christ. 
So how much of your joy today is that you are now part of the covenant people to inherit all the promises of the God of Israel? All of what you read in the Old Testament of what God, I mean, just Deuteronomy chapter 30, read that. The promises are just one after the next. But then you can quickly say, it's like, I'm not getting that because I'm not worthy. I'm not following the law, but no, look to Jesus. And all of that blessing and inheritance is yours in Christ. And you see, as we look at points one and two, there's this, it's, a, it's an inward action of the heart. And as we go through this passage, we're, we're reminding ourselves that we are to rest in Christ, that we can have the assurance of our confession in Jesus Christ. And what this is leading to is an, an outward action, which is to proclaim the gospel. As the truth of the gospel is, is, has settled in your heart, as we begin to just pause and reflect upon what Christ has done for us, and now what God looks at us as, I don't want to contain that. I want to look at the world around me as as just worthy of hearing the very same gospel that I heard and proclaim it. Let me read verses 14 through 17 here. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, in hearing through the word of Christ. Let's be reminded that of the, the problem that the Apostle Paul is dealing with in Romans 9 and 10, and that's mainly, it's the unbelief of Israel and why it happened and, and why it does, and, and why this truth of Israel's unbelief, why it doesn't undermine the faithfulness and reliability of God, that's, that's what um, the Apostle Paul is unpacking in chapter 9 and here in verse, I'm sorry, in chapter 10. But it's important to see that what Paul is also unpacking is he's, he's also anticipating another argument that he may receive. Because one objection to what Paul is saying here is that it, it, it might be that, that God has not put in place the prerequisites of salvation. You know, maybe Israel and, and the Gentiles too, by implication, they, they, they haven't believed because they don't have what they need to have to be held accountable to believe. You see, Paul is, 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 is addressing this by saying, no, the message has gone forth. This is what he's saying in verse 15. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. He's saying this to show that God has indeed sent people with the good news. Israel has heard this in their history. The prophets proclaim the prophets point to the coming of Christ and what was to happen. The prophets, all of what was being said to them, they know. What you see here in, in this particular section of verses 14 through 17 is, is you're seeing these, 
basically like there, there are five steps of, of what's involved in believing and calling upon the name of the Lord for salvation. You see them here that a, a preacher must be sent, that the sent preacher must preach the good news. The preached good news, it must be heard. The heard good news, it must be believed. And the belief must be the kind that calls on God for salvation. So there's sending, there's preaching, there's hearing, believing, and calling on God. And it's interesting, too, that when you see in verse 17, Paul just reiterates So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You know, these these points come together and it it forces this question of of how is the voice of God heard? How is the voice and the proclamation of the gospel, how is it heard? It is heard through the preached word. Those who are sent to preach the word. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, that he sends messengers and, and entrusts them to the message of reconciliation. They open their mouths and say, we implore on you behalf, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And you see what happens is the people hear the gospel. And in, and in the gospel, they hear Christ calling and inviting and drawing the work of the Spirit. But then there's the calling upon the name of Christ. Now it's true that, you know, there is a, a divine calling that, that it could be more, I hate to use the word official, but vocational. You think of the, the, the pastors that are on staff here that teach the word. But I want you to know and hear that what is said here, it, it is not, it's, this is for all of us. Those of us who have the good news and are confessing in Christ, you were called to preach the good news. We are to be a church. And I pray that we continue to grow in this understanding and desire that, you know, I think of this week to come, and then we have Sunday next week. Like, what, what is happening between now and then? And I insert myself into this question. How am I living my life so that I am preaching the good news? Am I, am I seeking opportunities? Or maybe the better question to ask is, am I aware of the opportunities that God is bringing to me to be able to speak the truth of the gospel? Last week, we, we honored our, our high school seniors. We, we did it after second service. Uh, last week, we also had a lunch for them. And, you know, there, there are many things I always want to impart to our, our high school students as they graduate. And there's understandably always this longing of like, okay, what, what am I meant to focus my life on? What should, I, um, what should my job be? Should I go to college? If I do, should, what, should I, what should I major in? If, I, if I'm going to learn a trade, uh, what should that be? What should I devote my life to? I mean, it's, it's understandable. And it's going to be important to understand, you know, how God has gifted a person and, and what desires they have. And, and God weaves those together for very particular and important reasons. 
But I'm always mindful that what's not lost in the midst of that is that there is a mission. That if that high school student is in Christ, whatever it is they're doing for vocation, what follows them is the mission to be proclaiming the gospel. And again, it's not just our young people. It's all of us in here. How do we live our lives looking for the opportunities to proclaim the gospel? Because can I remind you that this, this, these verses, 14 through 17, you see outlined the progression. Let's be included in that. Let's understand that God in his way has, in his wisdom, has orchestrated this to happen in such a way that someone needs to hear the truth, hear the gospel. Let's rejoice in that. And especially let's support those who are, we, that we send out. Think of our, our gospel partners. I think of those who serve both globally and, and locally who are, who are seeking to impact our world around us in a very particular way. Of course support them, but don't let your job, my job, to be on mission just in with supporting them. Let's be on mission with them. We finally get to point number four. And we're, this will be in verses 18 through 21. And, and, and we're seeing what, I, what I'm describing as it's a merciful warning. And let me read this, this passage to us. Verse 18, it says, But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for... Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I asked, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask of me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I really invite you to put yourself in the position of the Apostle Paul. That as we have gone through Romans 9 and 10, that, that Paul's communication of what we see here, it, it's, it's been filled with pain. It's been a broken-hearted plea to his fellow countrymen. He says in Romans 9, 3, I, I, Paul said, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. We can't overlook the, 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 the connection, the sorrow that, that Paul has. But it doesn't hold him back from giving the warning. It doesn't hold him back from, from speaking to, as he unfolds verses 18 through 21, speaking more from the Old Testament, speaking to the sovereignty of God, calling the, calling the Israelites to, 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 or the Jews to not question or, I mean, it, it is a hard thing to understand and grasp as to like, okay, why, since all the promises were given to the nation of Israel, now why is God including the Gentiles I mean, it, it's a hard message to hear. It's understandable. I can understand if there's anger and, 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 and just all of what is wrapped up in that to hear. So yeah, I can put myself in the, in, the, in the position of the Jews of the time as well. 
But it doesn't change what Paul is going after here, is to preach the gospel and to plead for his countrymen to, his kinsmen, to turn to Christ. And so we can, we can easily wrestle with God's sovereignty and, and why he does things a certain way, but I would just encourage us, and I don't say this as a cop-out and to say stop thinking about it, but there comes a point where we just have to let God be God. There comes a point where we just have to look. I mean, if we look at all the, 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 the verses here preceding verse 18, um, we, we, have a, we have a mission. We have the word to proclaim, the gospel to proclaim. Uh, if, if you are in Christ and your confession is in Christ, this is your assurance of who you I mean, all of this points to the fact that, that God is at work expanding his kingdom and glorifying himself in Christ. That's what we are to focus on. But let our hearts be drawn to this one warning in verse 21. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. In other words, all the prophecies and all the fulfillments and all the gospel that Israel heard was not believed by most of them. You see, even in that verse, there is a display of a merciful God. He has held out his hands to this disobedient people. And may I just end here as, as a reminder for us, again, let's, let's not just look at that outside looking in on the nation of Israel. What about your own heart, my own heart of disobedience? A merciful God that holds his hand out to you to continue to pursue him. In Christ, you have that grace. But may I say this, for those in here who are not following Christ, who are not trusting in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that the mercy of God is not always going to be extended in the sense of being able to turn to him and follow Christ. Hear the call of the gospel today. Hear the call to believe in the work of Jesus Christ. To submit your life to him. We would love to talk with you. If you were in that place and, 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 and if God's word and his spirit is moving in your heart to where this is making sense. The call of the gospel is making sense. Well, let us pray with you. Let us hear together and celebrate with you your confession of what you are believing in your heart and pray with you. But again, as we go through this passage, as the last part of this passage, I mean, there's no excuse. So I ask you, what are your excuses this morning? Turn from them and turn to God. He is a loving God who has displayed his love through Jesus Christ. And so as we think upon that and we think upon communion, the table that is set before us, it is the constant reminder of the gospel. It is the reminder that, that Jesus died, that his blood was shed. It is the reminder to us and the hope that we have that, yes, the truth is Jesus died, Jesus rose from the dead, but we have the hope that Jesus will come again. And then as we live life now, 
in recognizing and sharing in this meal together, let it draw our hearts together in worshiping God together, but also draw us to that place of joy of proclaiming what Jesus has done. Let me pray together.